But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. Episode 321, the WTA Finals, the much beleaguered WTA Finals, have come and gone. The men are heading to their year in championships. We are heading to our season end. <laughs> 2023 tennis is almost over. I thought that this would be a more straightforward wrap of the WTA Finals, and it is certainly not. I feel like the actual tennis being played is going to be sidelined a little bit for us during this episode. There was so much that was going on with tennis governance, labor. Zverev. Right, that too. What you're trying to say is that this episode will be more issue-heavy than actual tennis-heavy. Yes, much like the problems surrounding the Cancun finals overshadowed much of the tennis being played itself. Start in Paris, Novak Djokovic, seven-time Paris champion after winning this time. <laughs> Yay! I, I don't have a ton to say about Paris. His 40th Masters title, his 97th ATP title overall. He's only trailing two people. The leader, Jimmy Connors, has 109 titles. Roger Federer has 103 Novak has been very clear that he is playing at this point to amass records. And there's nothing wrong with that. If I were that close to all those records, I probably would do the same damn thing. And if I were still this much better than men 15 years younger than me, why the hell not? Now, the only thing about those Djokovic quotes, I guess supposed quotes, I haven't really seen them verified that... Him saying like, oh, you know, this is why people don't like me because I'm the best and I want and I want all the records. It would be so comforting to think that, wouldn't it? To think that's why people don't like you? That's why a lot of people don't like him. Sure, but people in general? No, people in general don't care about issues. We see this time and time again. It's so clear to me that it's such a small swath of people who will dislike somebody, especially a man especially a male athlete, for their off-court behavior. Mm. That's my take on this I point. don't know. I think a lot of the people who dislike him just don't like him because of his personality. I mean, I can be honest and say I never liked him even before he was the best. So don't try that with me. Right. I'm saying we exist in a Twitter vacuum. The number of people on that site who <laughs> <laughs> have some kind of tennis community that bounce ideas off of each other, it's it's so small compared to the tennis viewing public at large. You've just been to a slam. Yes. The hundreds upon thousands of people who entered those gates, what percentage of those know anything about the Australian court drama of 20... <laughs> whenever? Yeah, I mean, what percentage of them would know a lot of top 10 players if they walked by them? Exactly. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, both the tennis Twitter people, for good reason, and Djokovic... For his own self-interest, gin up this friction, and it, it really falls flat on the mass right. tennis viewing public, right. in my opinion. I'm just saying it must be very comforting to think the reason people don't like you is because you're the best. I think it's motivating for him. Definitely. That's not really what I wanted to talk about. I mentioned the, the huge gulf between him and the rest of the field. And yes, that does still include Carlos Alcaraz. He got through three consecutive three-set matches while he was sick, dealing with a stomach issue, Djokovic, I mean, beating Echeverry, Greekspor, number six, Runa, number five, Rublev, and then Dimitrov in straight sets in the final. Andre played him very well, very tight in that semifinal. Yes. Went down, I think, three love right away and brought it back, winning that first set. The drop shot that Novak hit to lose set point in that first set was one of the worst tennis shots you'll ever see in your life, let alone from the presumptive goat. <laughs> it was delicious. But as is expected, he came back to win the match. But for Andre, it's 
the first time he took a set off of Novak on hard court, I believe. And these are the kind of, if not massive, but incremental improvements that should give him hope going forward. You know, yeah. you, you don't want to be coming out losing all these matches and not seeing any progress at all. He gave him a good fight. And then in the final, the Grishasans continued <laughs> even more so at this tournament. We talked previously on other episodes that Grigor has had a super stretch recently, and this was the culmination of that. He's back in the top 15 for the first time since October 2018. It was his first Masters final since winning Cincinnati in 2017. We were there for that. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Yep. He hasn't lost to a player outside the top 10 since Washington, which was Dan Evans. Or Zverev. He oh. lost to Zverev a few times when he was outside the top 10. Okay. That, that doesn't make this stat very uh, cute. Well, no, but it has to be true. Mm. <laughs> It's still an impressive stat. At this tournament, he beat Medvedev. Very good win there, needless to say. Bublik, who's been on a roll. Urkacz, who's been on a roll as well. Maybe an even bigger role. And then Stefano Tsitsipas. Urkacz made this late-season push to potentially reach the ATP Finals. He was so close. Almost got there. The stretch of winning Shanghai, being the runner-up in Basel, is really impressive and bodes well, I think, for the coming year. He's not a stranger to the top 10. No. I mean, this is, this could be his ceiling, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Sure. Perhaps. Uh, Another impressive run this fall has been uh, Andre Rublev's. He qualified at number five for the World Tour Finals, and he's just been very consistent since September. A quarterfinal at the US, runner-up in Shanghai, semis in Vienna and Paris. He's been drawn into a tough group for him in the finals, Medvedev, Zverev, and Alcaraz. Alcaraz, he has never played in an ATP match. He did beat him in an exhibition, but he's two and six versus Medvedev, three and five versus Zverev. And if he reaches the semis or final, he's one and five versus Djokovic. So it is a tough road in the round robin for him. Didn't really get a huge benefit of being the number five seed there. It is what it is, man. It is. It's supposed to be tough. The other big tournament, of course, that happened last week was the WTA Finals. It was a shitstorm, a shit show from start to finish. And it finished with a tornado of Iga in the final. <laughs> yeah, Iga unfazed by the weather conditions there, seemingly unfazed by everything. And it, it was just deeply impressive. To do all that and snatch back the number one ranking at the end of the year. Before we get into all the off-court stuff, or the court itself, from <laughs> from this tournament, a quick note on Iga. I've seen a lot of people talk about how her run at this tournament, and in fact her entire year, has been impressive. The trajectory of it, because she had this blitzing year last year, and then the field reset. They found a way to neutralize Iga to some extent, to where she wasn't running away with the entire 2023 season. We saw Sabalenka have great results, Jabir come back again, Vandrosheva. All these people found ways to put their hand up this year. Relegating Iga to number two and having to have her fight to get back the number one ranking. And she did so in emphatic fashion here. And so if you want to make the case that, well now, damn, this is Iga unlocking a new level potentially and watch out for 2024... Perhaps. Well, that's scary. But you see it when dominant players emerge, very often the field rises to that level or starts to figure her out. And sometimes the team effort, you know, to chip away at that armor. Ostapenko, for example, taking her out at the US Open. Would anyone else have done that? We don't know. She beat Jessica Pegula in the final, love and one. Pegula had the very rare opportunity to beat the numbers one, two, three, and four seeds at a tournament. I believe for the first time since 1975, Mm. if I recall correctly. And she had blitzed her way through the tournament herself until she ran into Iga in the final. Yes, drawn into a group with Rybakina and Sabalenka and Sakari. She goes through all of them in straight sets, gets to the semis, beats her exhausted doubles partner Coco Gauff, 6162. Coco, for her part, man, she just looked over it 
Uh, she was still fighting her heart out against Vondrosova in that wind for two and a half hours. She was trying, but it just, I mean, I felt like just let the poor girl go home. I don't know what it must have been like for these players to have to suffer through multiple interruptions during the course of a match, delays, matches postponed till the next day. You come out, you play a couple games, you have to wait, play a couple more, wait again. I tried to watch this tournament many times and I just couldn't. Because mm-hmm. I, I can't deal with these stoppages. Cannot. Like I did not have the bandwidth for it. <laughs> and then you watch the court and you see some of the greatest second serves that you've ever seen in your life. I've never seen I- Top spin second serves like that before. I mean, these are goat serves. I mean, where the, was the reporting on this? Like, the these highest, are record setting. Guinness should have been there. Like, these should have been documented. The highest kick serve that has ever been kicked. And in fact, what it boiled down to was a super shoddy court. Sabalenka's coach mentioned this before the tournament even started that it felt like there were holes beneath the surface. There were complaints very early on about how there were dead spots whereby you'd hit your most top spinny of top spin and it would just shoot along the, the surface. And Coco Goff at one point complained mid match to the back of the court saying, you know, that has nothing to do with top spin. That wasn't even top spin, it's the court. Mm-hmm. When you see players whiffing like that, where the ball dropping down dead, uh, <laughs> You know, sometimes it's some amazing spins, but in this case, it was very often the court was just shoddily built. And it's no small wonder because the thing was ready, what, one or two days before the event started? The players didn't even have a chance to practice on the court. These are really bare minimum expectations, especially at a tournament of this level, the marquee tournament of the WTA season, the biggest one. It's not a new phenomenon that the year-end championships on the WTA side features a surface that isn't ideal. Do you remember 2017? Oh, there was, I mean, a decade of indoor slow-ass tournaments, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that that was no better, in my opinion. But at least those courts existed. I'm not going to say that it wasn't (laughs) any better, (laughs) because there was at least even uniform bounce. The conditions were predictable, right? May just have been tough and annoying. It's been it's been a long time, I feel, since well maybe Guadalajara a couple of years ago. That was a that was a great event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? But by and large, I feel since we've been covering tennis on this podcast, the year in championships on the WTA side have not been an event to showcase or to allow the women to showcase the best of themselves. Yeah, I agree. And here in Cancun, it is autumn. It's the eastern side of Mexico. This is hurricane season. And they were plagued with heavy winds, with rain. We got a Monday final, of course. Acapulco on the west side, on the Pacific side of Mexico, was hit with devastating Category 5 hurricane. The tennis site there was actually completely destroyed. And just, uh, you know, uh, horrible for the people impacted in Acapulco. It was really just horrendous to see. As you say, Acapulco, that TV show is coming back. I, I was surprised. Oh, on Apple? Yeah. Okay. I just read about that. But it, you know, it was probably a strange place to put an outdoor tennis tournament in the fall. Well, it was kind of billed as a kind of a paradise. The, and right. I'm sure part of why the players signed off on it, as we were told, that, hey, they chose Cancun, albeit at the last minute, but they chose this location, was because it was Cancun, right? Right. You say you're going to Cancun, you're like, okay, all right, we'll practice, we'll go to the beach, sip some margaritas, then go back, you know, even if I don't play well, it'll be great vistas. Yeah. Uh, Magdalenette gave an interview that was published in a Polish outlet, revealing that the WTA Players Council actually chose Cancun. And she said it was because there was a lack of clarity around whether Russian and Belarusian players would be able to enter Czech Republic. That was the main competing bid. It was a very attractive bid, but the Players Council felt it wasn't clear enough that 
a player like Sabalenka or Zvonareva, who won the doubles title, would have been admitted to the country. We'll set the context for this in a moment, but Lynette gave a huge, huge gift to Steve Simon in this moment. She gave him plausible deniability. She gave the WTA an out. Now, it doesn't explain why there were just a few bids, and they were taking bids in September, when the event happens at the end of August. It does not let them off the hook for that. John Wertheim tweeted that it was interesting that Sabalenka was the loudest voice criticizing Cancun when she was possibly a reason why Hmm? they didn't go to Prague. And I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Like, I don't love blaming Sabalenka for this because this really sits with the WTA. Uh, This should have been decided months before. But what would Sabalenka be blamed for in this instance? When you say, I don't love her being blamed. Oh, I mean, uh, some people are saying like, well, she should shut up because it's her fault. You know, it's her fault that because of her citizenship, she couldn't get into Czech Republic or because she hasn't behaved in the way that a lot of people would like, you know, throughout Mm. the conflict, right? Um, I don't really agree with that. I think that Magda... Uh, did a lot of work. I hope she's getting a bonus because <laughs> the WTA has been getting just nasty PR. Horrible. It's really damaging to their reputation over the past few weeks. And no, no, she no, gave no. them one little out. No, no, no. This has been a shambolic year. It has. For the WTA. I read one of these articles. It must have been Matt Futterman, the mm-hmm. only working journalist in tennis. The last six months. In North America, at least. For The Athletic. And it it laid out just how bad and how many missteps and how many egregious things have happened that have been laid at the WTA's feet, at leadership's feet this year. Yes. And when you read it back to back to back, that dossier is, it's a binder full of fuck-ups. Well, why don't we go there? Um, we'll we'll talk about the rest of Cancun in a moment, but let's set the context to a lot of the players' anger and frustration about what was going on there. Like you said, Matt Futterman seems to be one of, if not the only, journalist actively covering and reporting on tennis in North America. Right, because Tamani Cariel is carrying uh, Right, there are, there are actually journalists in the UK and in Europe who get paid to cover tennis. Yes, I mean, the stuff that I read that I find worthwhile tends to come from Tamani, and the rest of the British ones tend to be just bloviating on Twitter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I'm i not going to comment on that. To be fair, the Times of London is paywalled. They do a lot of reporting, but um, okay. I'm not paying for it. Okay. And I'm not paying for the New York Times either. I'm just saying every time I see one of these little men on Twitter, it's to say something just really daft. So, <laughs> Okay. Uh, let me just say, because I just want to get this out there. Earlier this year, so the New York Times had purchased The Athletic a while ago, which is an online sports publication that mm-hmm. was really popular, was subscription-based. The New York Times bought The Athletic, and I think a lot of people who have worked in newspapers before like me, could see the writing on the wall. So this year, the New York Times made the decision to close their sports department, which was unionized, and rely on The Athletic instead. And Matt Futterman used to write for The New York Times. Yes. So you could call that union busting. You could call that union avoidance. Uh, I don't like it, but that's kind of the context that I just want to get out there because it, it bugs me. But Futterman is doing great work for The Athletic, He wrote a a number of articles over the past few weeks that delve pretty deeply into what's going on with WTA. He revealed that on October 5th, the players sent a letter to the WTA. It was signed by 21 players, many of whom were in the top 20. Iga Shriantek did not sign the letter, but reportedly she sent her own separate letter about her issues. This was sent on October 5th. It was only recently reported on. And the players requested a written response from the WTA. And instead, Steve Simon uh, invited them to two meetings to discuss the contents of the letter. With this reporting, what we get a picture of is the top women players having had it. They've had it. Mm -hmm. With so many things that have happened this year, with the scheduling, with starting matches, with starting finals at midnight, 
rather than have it be a joint programming with the men the following day, with prize money, withdrawal policies from tournaments. Why don't we discuss what the the specific asks were in the letter? Okay, so they're asking uh, for flexibility in scheduling, fewer mandatories, more time between big events, lower fines for skipping mandatory events, the ability to withdraw without penalties, the end of late starts and sufficient rest periods, you know, not playing at midnight and then having to come back for a mid-afternoon match the next day. The letter also requested, quote, immediate consideration for their needs for higher pay, flexible schedule, expanded childcare, and official representation on Players' Council from the PTPA. Well. (laughs) Do you want to bet who wrote the letter? um, That is pure speculation. So uh, do not quote me on that. I don't want to get sued. (laughs) But no, I'm saying there was a clear push for representation for the PTPA on Players' Council. WTA has repeatedly refused to recognize the PTPA as a representative of the players as a collective. They've also asked for a guaranteed income, like the ATP has recently rolled out. They've asked for uh, $500,000 for top 100 players, $200,000 for players ranked 101 to 175, and one hundred grand for players ranked 175 to 250. This is actually quite a bit higher than what the ATP agreed to, but obviously in negotiations, you ask for more than you think you're going to get. They've also requested injury protection and pay for maternity or parental leave. And finally, they would like to be able to audit the financial records of tournaments, which they currently cannot do. In Cancun, the WTA finalists received a series of talking points on important topics. Now, this was wild to me. (laughs) We talked so much in the last few months about what the considerations might have been, could have been, giving some grace and leeway to Steve Simon and the WTA vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia. And we still think that that's on the docket for next year and Mm -hmm. beyond. And this kind of proves it, truly. Because in these talking points, again, this is reported by Matt Futterman, on Saudi Arabia, where players who are gay may feel uncomfortable in a country which criminalizes homosexuality, the WTA advised players to consider saying, nothing could have prepared me for this. <laughs> Quote, I'm happy to play wherever the WTA finals is hosted. It's a prestigious event. What? That's it? I mean, you AI could not have written a more robotic answer than this. You should have chat GPT'd that shit. Players were, quote, advised to consider expressing pride in the WTA's efforts to increase player compensation and stating that they, too, look forward to continued conversations to, quote, keep building a strong future for women's tennis. These talking points were given out in the wake of the refusal of Simon and the WTA to write a written response to the player letter. Instead, they had those two sessions. Now, during the week, John Wertheim revealed the letter that Steve Simon finally wrote to the players in response. It was signed personally by Steve, and I believe it was written by him because it was not written in, like, professional PR comms style. There were mistakes. It could have been more professional, but I actually think it was from him. Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. But if you know that there's a storm a-brewing with the players, Mm -hmm. that they've made all these requests, that they're unhappy by and large, not just the little plebs in the 80s and 90s and ranked 150, your top players have had it. Mm -hmm. You then send them these talking points in case they're asked about these things by press at the WTA championships, right? The year in finals expecting them in effect to have your back to do your pr for why 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 would they do that well because why would they tow the company line when you have not responded to their quote-unquote demands to their grievances and they're just supposed to take take one for the team there's a lot of we are all in service of keeping this great sporting legacy going in women's tennis 
that almost necessarily suppresses agitation, protest, the, the types of labor actions on which WTA were founded. Right. And all in service of we're all in this together. And at a certain point, that is going to combust. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that's the point that we're at with the players in relation to WTA leadership right now. Right. It's the insistence by the WTA that they are an equal partnership between players and tournament interests. And theoretically, structurally, they are. Right. There, there are an equal number of player representatives and tournament representatives. But in actuality, uh, how can that ever exist? How can this organization, this corporation ever be an equal partnership between players and the tournaments? There is a baked in conflict of interest in how they, they operate. And the ATP operates in a similar way. It's structured in pretty much the same way. When Steve Simon's salary was being circulated this week... Oh, I missed that. You missed that? Yeah. <laughs> is it, I mean, is it it's like, in like pretty... the? It's in like the 1.3 range. Okay, that's that's a lot. It's a lot, but it's not crazy uh -huh. for like a professional sports CEO. I'm just right. saying like, this is happening now because <laughs> the heat is firmly on him. You know? Yes. Uh, so as I mentioned, Steve Simon did respond in a letter. Wertheim is clearly the leaky of choice. Documents are continually leaked to John Wertheim, and he publishes them. In the letter, Simon said that many of the concerns that the players brought up are currently being reviewed or will be presented to the WTA board at the end of November, including the policy on withdrawals, uh, reducing the number of mandatory tournaments, fixing the schedule so tournaments don't overlap. And he said that minimum income and the maternity and injury leaves are already under review, even before the letter was written. Released in the firestorm of Cancun, I don't think the letter was well received. And I, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I cannot see Steve Simon surviving this. I'm not here to speculate on that. Okay. I don't think it's useful at all. No, you're right. You're right. But, uh, you know... Before the tournament, you you kind of put forward this theory, and I know you're not who, the me? only one. Yeah, who said like, well, maybe they chose Cancun because it would be an easy out. There would be no drive to stay in Cancun if Saudi Arabia were the alternative, right? It was like priming people to accept the move to Saudi Arabia next year. And my God, this tournament was such a disaster that folks are going to want them to leave. And if Saudi Arabia is offering a shit ton of money, pristine courts, an amazing experience, the the voices of disapproval are going to, to go down. They're going to reduce. I have retired from the business of predicting how any of this stuff is going to turn out because this has <laughs> been, this could have been a, a documentary, uh, a limited series, how this all <laughs> played out this year. Yes. The PTPA has uh, has started a kind of media blitz. Starting yesterday, they released uh, a statement where they invited the WTA to co-commission an independent report on everything that broke down with regard to the WTA finals. And they quote, await the WTA's response within 10 days. I'm sure that is right up there on Steve Simon's <laughs> list of priorities. I guess my question is like, or what? What happens after 10 days? Uh, we joke, but but the player interest in the PTPA is going to increase, right? An organization that is independent and represents players' interests purportedly, they're going to be able to take advantage of player discontent. And if players can blame the current Players' Council, which is right now their only avenue to express their opinions within the structure of the WTA, if distrust festers about the Players' Council, the PTPA is going to look very attractive to players. Right, and also if the Players' Council appears to be too close or working too in step with WTA brass, then the PTA becomes a more attractive option. I mean, if you can't capitalize on all these things going on now to further yourself as the PTPA, I don't know... There's just no helping you, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying the PTPA is doing like an amazing job. 
but the WTA uh, at some point ignores them at its own peril. So while that happened, while the tennis was going on, at the end of it, Iga and Arena were playing for the number one ranking. The way the cookie crumbled, the dominoes fell. Iga needed to win that final in order to reclaim the number one ranking. She beat Arena in the semifinal. She's back to number one. Yep, just to kind of circle back or do a reach around, as a friend of ours likes to say. We mentioned last episode that Sabalenka could keep the number one ranking if she won two round-robin matches and reached the final. Unfortunately, she won two round-robin matches but did not reach the final. As Mm. you said, falling to Iga in the semis. Iga snatches that ranking back in doubles. Interesting week for doubles as well because some of the kind of fan-fave teams didn't do so well. Pagula Goff went 0-3. Siniakova and Krejcikova didn't do great. I think they went 1-2 in the group stage. Zygamund, who uh, you may remember from the first round of the U.S. Open against Coco Goff, she finishes her year with the doubles title at the WTA Finals. Vera Zvonareva is a top 10 doubles player again. Right. <laughs> she go- In the last few years, it seems like she's taken a few months off due to injury or just maybe a few months off and comes back and immediately wins a few matches in singles and a ton in doubles. And she repeats the process. She's still, you, you see her walk around the grounds and she looks like one of the most professional tennis players that there are. Mm-hmm. Storm Hunter has risen to number one in doubles for the very first time. Mertens is now number two. And something interesting about the scheduling at this tournament, because there was so much rain and so many disruptions, a lot of players had to play more than one match a day. And some players were both in singles and doubles, like Goff and Pagula. Uh, ben Rothenberg reported that it was Laura Ziegemund's choice to move the doubles final to Monday because she'd already played basically one and a half matches on Sunday. Ben's reporting was confirmed by Ellen Perez. Ellen Perez has all the tea on tennis Twitter. If you ever want to know something, just ask her. There was like a slight controversy because Perez was also trying to get to Seville for the BJK uh, championships, BJK Cup. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. I I cannot wrap my mouth around that. So in other words, she wanted to get out of Cancun because she had this place to go, but Sigmund was not having it. She said, yes. for my own personal benefit and health, I'm going to play Monday and said, that's what I want, which kept Perez in Cancun longer. And she said, quote, I don't blame Laura for this. Sure, she could have been a team player and helped me out, but I understand she needs to do what's best for her to perform in the finals. <laughs> which, which made me chuckle because it, it maybe does sound like you blame her a little bit. The team the team player thing. But I actually don't blame Zygamon for making this decision. If it was a decision that was given to her, you know, why wouldn't you make that choice? It's a non-starter mm-hmm. for me. The other major news that happened off court since we last recorded was having to do with Alexander Zverev and his latest case that's been brought against him. The Berlin prosecutor's office has issued a penalty order against Zverev for bodily harm. What this is, is that in German law, a penalty order is used by a public prosecutor's office when it does not consider a trial to be necessary, such as when the case is relatively simple and there is compelling evidence in favor of the accusation. That uh, description is thanks to Timani Karyal's story in The Guardian. This is essentially a way for a defendant to accept the penalty order, pay the fine, and avoid a trial. Zverev's penalty order was 450,000 euro, and it was calculated by using 90 daily pay rates of 5,000 euro, if you're interested in how they come up with that number. His options are to pay the 450,000 euro, be done with it, but it's on his record that he's accepted this penalty order for bodily harm, or he can object to it, he can appeal. And he's done that. He's denied the charge. He's lodged an objection to the penalty order, and this will now go to trial. The Berlin prosecutor's office applied for the penalty order back in July. His lawyers say, quote, the procedure is scandalous. There can be no question of a fair constitutional procedure. Mr. Zverev will take action against this using all means possible. Now, a content warning, because the stuff that will be coming now in this recording has to do with intimate partner violence. These charges come from Zverev's ex-partner and the mother of his child, Brenda Patea, who 
has accused him of bodily harm. She's the second woman to accuse him of intimate partner violence, the first to file criminal charges. And it's taken a long time to wind its way through Berlin courts. You can probably tell that German law is very, very different from what many of us are used to. It's quite different from North American or UK criminal law. Although the court issued this penalty order, which indicates that there's compelling evidence of guilt, he will still be given the presumption of innocence during the trial. Brenda said that, quote, it was a mixture of shame, fear of Zverev's lawyers, and concern for the child that made her hesitate before filing charges. But she wanted to be an example for others. She also said that hearing Olia's story gave her courage. She alleges that Zverev pushed her into a wall and choked her. In evidence, Zverev is said to have admitted this in the presence of witnesses. This is especially complicated because custody arrangements for the child are part of these same proceedings. Patea alleges that Zverev's team offered her 100,000 euro to be quiet on the condition that she fly with the baby six times per year to meet Zverev on tour. And this alleged offer also forbade Patea from contacting Olia Sharipova. This is in reference to the story published by Ben Rothenberg, first in Racket Magazine and then in Slate, which uh, was the subject of a lot of legal contestation in Germany. Zverev's response, quote, I think it's complete bullshit. Anybody who has semi-standard IQ levels knows what this is all about. Now, what is this all about? What does that mean? And to me, that reads as him trading on the countless responses we've seen over the last three years, whereby the default is, this is a gold digger. This is somebody who wants money. There's no merit to this. This is just Brenda Patea trying to get a payout. Right. If, if I were to hazard a guess, in the absence of him spelling it out specifically, what else could he What else well, could he be referring to? I, I want him to say it. I guess we have substandard IQs because we don't know what this is about. So tell us. And if not, as Monique said, Lenard, keep it on the playground. That's exactly what that means. If you want to be serious... Be honest about what you think it's about, or do you think it'll hurt your case further? Or do you think it'll be inviting a defamation lawsuit, which you've been quite eager to bring against other people? This is somebody whose tone in responding to these accusations, both from Sharpova and from Patea, has been uniformly condescending. Arrogant. It has been dismissive from the start. It, this is in keeping with how he's handled it the entire time. And I'm particularly disgusted by it because you can make a forceful, full-throated defense of yourself without being condescending to people. You can say calmly, you know, I find intimate partner violence to be abhorrent. This is not what this is. I am innocent of these charges and I look forward to clearing my name, period, point blank. Rather than being petulant, churlish, just nasty to anybody who comes in his path, to try and talk about this stuff. You can tell a lot about him based on his responses here. The big concern among tennis fans, I think, should probably be what is the ATP doing to prevent these things from happening again and to censure players who uh, allegedly engage in this type of abuse. And I do want to note, and I've tweeted this, that the presumption of innocence is very important in court. But it is not something that you personally are obligated to uphold. You don't have to believe he's innocent. You're not a judge. Especially at this stage where now we've had multiple accusers, where a court, an entire court system, has found the second set of allegations viable enough to, to the point where they've issued this penalty order. It's not saying that he's guilty, but they're saying there's a likelihood of guilt. Right. That's what it's saying. And from the start... We keep hearing people say, well, he's presumed innocent until proven otherwise. Nothing has been taken to court. Nobody has filed charges, da 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 These things have been put into motion. This has now happened. And so with this accumulation of evidence, these accumulation of charges, what picture is being painted that you now want to ignore? You asked me to look back on what the ATP has been doing over the past few years, just so we got our facts straight. And I'm glad you did, because it does provide a bit, a bit of a timeline. Well, I had done it 
But I wanted you to do it as well. <laughs> okay. That's what I meant by that. Well, I wrote it down. In August of 2021, the ATP announces an action plan on safeguarding against abuse, and it said that it would do a comprehensive review of policy. If you're curious about what the ATP's current safeguarding policies are, I wish you luck. Good luck finding them, because I could not. Currently, the ATP in a press release said that they've typically deferred to legal authorities in cases of abuse before determining if further internal action is warranted under the ATP Code of Conduct. Now, there's not a whole lot in the ATP Code of Conduct about this stuff. If you engage in activities that, I forgot the exact language, but uh, harm the integrity of the game, for example, Mm. that could be a, a large umbrella but they don't really have publicly available safeguarding policies if you go look for them. I did a simple Google search of Zverev ATP domestic abuse to try and get a timeline of what it is that the ATP has said, done, changes they've made, any progress. I didn't want to come out here and blanketly be like, well, what has the ATP done? Because we've done that right, a lot. Right. And perhaps they've, they've done stuff that we've just not seen. In October 2021, the ATP receives, quote, independent safeguarding report with a number of recommendations and announces investigation into Zverev. Now, if you want to know what's in that report, too bad, because the link goes to Broken 401. 404? What is 404. it? 404. 404. <laughs> yeah, there are a number of stories uh, that basically just paraphrase the press release that was released back then. They did get the report. It was only two months later. Right, It seemed like there was progress being made. And at the same time, they announced that they were investigating Zverev. Mm-hmm. That took about 15 months. In January 2023, the ATP concludes its investigation into the Sharapova allegations and takes no disciplinary action, citing, quote, insufficient evidence. Not saying that it never happened or that it wasn't true, but there was insufficient evidence. From the start, we said that in step with other major professional sporting leagues that have domestic violence policies on on their books. The ATP could have been proactive and issued some sanction. They didn't. In this report saying that they found no evidence of wrongdoing against Verev, but we are willing to, down the road, should further allegations come forward, revisit this. There has been no revisiting. In the meantime, they have hired a director of safeguarding. Good luck trying to find that press release. (laughs) I found the announcement on LinkedIn. I saw that too, but like, come on. It just goes to show again how little coverage of this story there is in professional tennis circles. Right. 11 months ago, when the results of that investigation was dumped the week after the Australian Open in a slow news period, Chief Executive Massimo Calvelli said, We ultimately believe the exhaustive process was necessary to reach an informed judgment. He was referring to the 15-month period in which we got zero updates about this investigation. He went on to say, It has also shown the need for us to be more responsive on safeguarding matters. It is the reason we've taken steps in that direction, with a lot of important work still ahead. And as you said, two months later in March of this year, they hired a director of safeguarding, Andrew Azopardi. I understand safeguarding policies are going to take a long time to create. There are a number of jurisdictions in which the ATP operates. You have to make sure that these policies are even enforceable. And I would go as far to say that even if the ATP had uncovered wrongdoing by Zverev, are there policies in place that are enforceable if you chose to take disciplinary action? I think the point here is that the ATP is years and years behind. And also asleep at the wheel. They can't even be bothered to do the bare minimum and not promote him to the hilt on social media. Right. Uh, (laughs) And again, we're entering this period now where he's qualified for the ATP finals. And how is this going to be talked about? This is a brand new story again, re-emerging at a big ATP event. Do you remember at the Tokyo Olympics where he won the gold medal, how Mary Carrillo was the only one, really, to speak about this on air when Mm -hmm. calling his matches and how conflicted she was in approaching his matches. Right. Darren Cahill was one of the the other early commentators to mention this on air, but there was essentially a complete media blackout on the accusations against Verev. And part of that was probably fear because he has these vicious lawyers 
who are trying to shut down the story in a number of different countries. Part of that is total apathy, just complete lack of care. Kudos to Mary Carrillo, who has done this before, has put her reputation and her career in jeopardy because she believed in something. And I'm sure there are networks who don't want to work with her. But like you said, why can't the ATP do the bare minimum? What do they lose? What revenue do they lose if they pull back on promoting Zvera's matches? Is he like the biggest attention getter in the ATP? Are they going to lose a lot of money or eyeballs or advertisers if they don't push his accomplishments or matches? I don't think so. What if you didn't tweet when he won a match? Would he sue you? (laughs) Would it be worth it? He might. Well, he might. He might try. But on what grounds? And here's where I want to jump back to how we talk about the WTA versus the ATP. The WTA is clearly in a crisis of leadership and organization. There is, I believe, some ineptitude on the business side. But the ATP, because everything looks to be functioning smoothly, is given a pass. The ATP has, I believe, exhibited moral rot with the Zverev issue. So you can say the WTA is inept at business. Well, the ATP has shown themselves to be inept at this. The WTA attempted to take a moral stance with the Peng Shui situation, backed up 2.6% by the ATP. Right, and now it's it's blown up in their faces and they've been blamed for it. The ATP, (laughs) as an organization led by men and leading men, is continually given the pass for this sort of thing because it makes good business sense, I guess. And this is not a one-off issue. They've had multiple players in the last few years with charges leveled against them. This is not something that was unforeseen. This is not a one-off. Time and time again, they've chosen to be silent, to hope that people won't hold them to the fire, to hope that it will just blow over so that they don't have to deal with it. Moral rot is absolutely accurate. Name them. Name the players. Basilashvili, Leander Pays. Zaibushvuj, Zverev, and others, and more to come, not the first and not the last. These players have either been accused or charged or convicted, in some cases, of intimate partner violence or domestic abuse. Globally, almost one in three women have been subjected to physical or sexual violence by a partner or non-partner, or both, and that's according to the World Health Organization. A study published in The Lancet, a medical journal, finds that 27% of women around the world are estimated to have experienced intimate partner violence. For men, it's anywhere from 10% to 20%. And these, of course, are estimates, but a one in three women in your life have been subjected to violence by a partner or by someone who is not their partner. The fact that the ATP has been so slow and irresponsible in acting is just, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say at this point. I don't know why Zverev is playing the ATP Finals when he's just been issued a penalty order. They could have provisionally suspended him for six months. If I'm the ATP, as soon as that ankle rolled in Roland Garros, I would have drafted the letter, I'd have written it, sent it to cover my ass. Six months, that's it. We did something. You know, like, if you wanted to do the bare minimum, that was your moment. They do not care. They have all these talking points saying they're going to do this, do that. It's been a year since they said, who was it? The Calvelli? Yeah. In January 2023, he said, we ultimately believe the exhaustive process was necessary and that the need for us to be more responsive on safeguarding matters. We need to be doing something more. That's been a year. They hired the dude in March. What has he done? It's going to take a while. It's going to take at least a year or two. Right, to put right. together policies. But I guarantee you, this Brenda Patea thing did not just happen out of the blue. It's been going on for a while. People knew about it behind the scenes. The ATP had to know that this was coming. And yet you are still, again, unprepared to deal with this publicly. To meet the moment to where you do not look like an absolute shambolic sporting organization. So look out for that. If you're watching the ATP Finals this week, look out for that. How he's talked about, how he's featured whether it's prominent, if anybody mentions anything. If Robbie Koenig can manage to couple a boomski with some description of what he's facing this time around. Mm-hmm. You know, or if it's just all, these are the greatest, the greatest, the greatest men 
Just wonderful, wonderful men. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Did you see Tennis TV's cartoon of the top eight men? I did not. All illustrated as superheroes? Mm. Love to see Zverev in a cartoon superhero costume. He was wearing lederhosen, if you were curious. Amazing. A few uh, etc. before we end the episode. One of Zverev's biggest supporters when the Sharapova story first broke. She won't be playing tennis for a while because Belinda Bencic is pregnant. 26 years old, she'll be having a child with her partner and fitness coach, Martin Romkovich. You mentioned shambolic. Love that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of shambolic, Patrick Moratalu. Shamwow. Uh, he released a video saying that he, quote, feels responsible for what's happening with Simona. Note he did not say, I am responsible. He said, I feel responsible. Oprah voice, do you feel responsible (laughs) or are you responsible? Patrick, of course, was present as a witness during Simona's uh, independent tribunal hearing. It's now going to the CAS for an appeal. He's confident that it'll be overturned. Very confident. In this video, he says, quote, I feel responsible for what happened because it was my team. So me, basically, who brought her this collagen. And he's confident that the independent tribunal will recognize that this was accidental contamination. This still doesn't explain the biopassport, babes. No. They have a a long road here to disprove both charges. The test and the biological passport. The independent tribunal ruled that contamination did not explain the passport or the level of this drug in her system. Patrick is still on the side of contamination. We shall see. But I want to be clear, like, this is not a moral victory. Patrick should not be celebrated here for taking her side. He said he feels responsible, but he is not taking responsibility. That's that's a different leap. Surprising news in that Pear Reba and Coco Goff have split. We got this news in Cancun, right? Early on yeah. in Cancun, where Lindsay Davenport and Chanda Rubin were commentating a match and just casually dropped this news... And people are like, what? And then Coco issued a statement saying, yeah, you know, it sucks. Wasn't my doing. I really wish he was still on my team. And then Pear clarified further saying that he needed to be away and with his family for personal reasons. Right. So nothing acrimonious, at least that was shared publicly. And it seems to just be a matter of circumstance. Brad Gilbert was with Coco in Cancun for the WTA Finals. So I don't know if that means that he'll be a full-time coach for Coco and what the makeup of her team will look like for 2024. That's something to keep an eye on. That brings us to the end of this episode, episode 321 of The Body Serve. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We're going to try and ramp up our activity on Blue Sky. We'll see. Yeah, I think we're up to... I'm so excited. We're up to... 102 followers oh now that you crossed the 5,000 threshold <laughs> yeah. on x now on i have Twitter, like new you can... i have new goals over on blue oh sky my God. you can find everything body serve related at linktree.com slash the body serve thanks for listening till next time thank you very much